this is the AT Banter Podcast, a balanced and entertaining look at assistive technology, accessibility, and its importance in people's lives. Join Rob Minot, Ryan Fleury, and Steve Barclay as they banter with people around the world about anything and everything about assistive technology and the disability community. Now, on with the show. Hey, and welcome to another episode of AT Banter. Banter, banter. Uh, hey, my name is Robin O, and joining me today, drumroll please, Mr. Ryan Flurry. Hello again. I'm trying to spice things up a little bit. Mr. Steve Barkley. I was never here. And that's it. He sounds like Droopy Dog. <laughs> <laughs> I was never here. That is, that is pretty good. Well, you know, one of these days we could turn on our video and record it and people could actually look and see who it is. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I don't know what the feel of that would be. <laughs> Three balding guys. <laughs> well, hey, listen. Yeah, okay. I have no defense. You're wearing pants. Yeah, well, you assume. <laughs> uh, it's hot out today, man. I know the last couple of days it's been like 29 degrees outside Celsius for our American friends. So. Yeah, it's not pant weather at all. No. no. Um, but I'll tell you what, the Guitar Dungeon is probably, oh, I don't know, 10 degrees in here. It's nice and cool down here. Yeah, I'll bet. I'll really bet this cool. is the perfect time of year for you down there in the Guitar Dungeon. You betcha. Yep. Uh, especially now that you got rid of the ants. Yep. Um, how, uh, how's it going? It's going pretty good. It's going pretty good. Our last, um, I think it was pub chat we did last Thursday night. One of the regulars in there was mentioning, uh, liqueur made in Nanaimo and it's a Nanaimo bar flavored liqueur. Really? He says, you got to try it. So on the weekend, Linda and I went to the liquor store and I didn't find the one made in Nanaimo, but I found one called 40 Creek okay. out of Ontario and it is Nanaimo bar liqueur. And is it ever good? Well, what do you, what do you mix it with? You don't, you just pour it in a glass and you drink it. It's just liqueur. It's it's, it tastes like Nanaimo bars. It's the chocolatey, the coconutty. Wow. Oh, it's smooth. It's, it's not super sweet, but it's sweet enough to give you that flavor. It's really nice interesting yeah the downside know. to it is my mini fridge is down here in the guitar dungeon where my office is so it'd be really easy at lunchtime to go over and take a little snoot <laughs> <laughs> well uh yeah you know what I, liqueurs are a weird thing like i don't know how i feel about liqueurs because on the one hand i feel like they don't really get you hammered because they're not strong enough alcohol and so i i don't know i guess i don't understand alcohol that doesn't but you got to find one that, that really tastes good too like we've We've tried some blueberries and cranberry liqueurs and lots of different types of stuff, but this is, this would be so good either added to like your coffee or to like some vanilla ice cream. Damn. Oh, so good, Rob. You got to find it and try it. All right. All right. You sold me. You it's, sold it's me. I, I listened to you about tarantula. So <laughs> we're, we're damn right about that. At least this is, you're getting me addicted to something that I can actually buy in this province. So yep, that's right. That's, well, let me ask you, what's new with you over there? Oh, you're throwing me for a loop. I'm not used to that. I, I I, I'm the one that asks the question. <laughs> Nobody knows what's <laughs> going on in Rob's world. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I've just had my head buried. Uh, it's been very, it's a very busy time over uh, at uh, Blind Beginnings. We're doing some, some infrastructure work. So there's a lot of admin stuff. We're bringing in this new, uh, this new database system Uh and uh, it's, that's, that's been a lot of work. And we're also prepping for our big annual general meeting later this month. And so there's a lot of work around that. So uh, yeah, I've, I've been, I've been very busy. So I'm going to be, I'm looking forward to two weeks from now when things will sort of go back to normal. Well, and to check out what's going on over at Blind Beginnings, where can people check that out? They, uh, well, they're welcome to go to www.blindbeginnings.ca. Excellent. There's lots of events going on. They're nonstop over there. 
Well, that's right. You know, we got the uh, the Limitless podcast that is going strong, and they uh, were pretty excited because next week we will be recording our uh, one year anniversary show. Well, so let's give them a cowbell for that. That's right. They've been working hard all year. Hard to believe it's been a year. I know. Yeah, it really is. Crazy. Yeah, fifty. It'll be fifty-two episodes uh, in the bag as of next week. So, well, yeah, it's all- crazy. And Sean still sounds really, really good. I'm glad that the equipment's working out for her. That's right. Yep. Yep. She owes it all to you. Everybody owes everything to me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know what? Uh, Before we get too far down the rabbit hole, uh, why don't we uh, tell the fine folks what we're doing today? Today, we are speaking with Al Etmansky, who is an accessibility advocate as well as author of a book called The Power of Disability, which you and I have both read and found really very interesting. Yeah, I have to say, I loved this book. Um, and I was really excited that you managed to, to grab him as a guest. We got turned on to Al's book, uh, The Power of Disability, by Stephanie DeBishop from the Plan Institute when uh, we had her on the show a few weeks back. And, you know, I consumed that book in just over a weekend, which is, which is kind of unusual for me because I find that, that um, find reading is a lot harder to do these days because just because there's so many distractions these days but uh I, you know i burned through it in a weekend and absolutely loved it so i'm really excited to be talking to al today yeah it took me probably about a week and a half to read the book because like you there's distractions that go on but yeah it's available um i got it from audible so the audio version but i believe it's also available in kindle as well or paperback so definitely worth a read Look at you plugging today. You are just plugging up a storm. Plug, plug, plug. I tell you. I tell you, it's the Nanaimo bar like here. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, are, are, you, are you... I did earlier. Are you into some sort of deals with some people that I don't know about? That I mean, it's, No. You're sure some backdoor deals with uh, Cure Maker? That, yeah, like your distributors? Your <laughs> what was the name of it? This one, Forty Creek. 40 Creek. Yeah. Big shout out to 40 Creek. In Ontario. Send me for some free <laughs> samples. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> and tarantula tequila. <laughs> yeah, still not available in British Columbia. Mm, I yes. still want to try their strawberry version, though. Mm, oh, it's so, be good. so good. Yeah. So good. Man. I think they also have a mango flavored. Am I crazy about mango? Yeah. I mean, I'd be intrigued. I'd be intrigued Mm -hmm. to try a mango flavored tequila. Road trip. Yeah, there you go. I haven't been inside a church in ages. Hello? Hello, my child. Father, I've started listening to this podcast in the last while, and I've been listening to it during work time. I'm doing no work because it's so funny. It's presented by these three blind guys. Would this be the the Blind Guys Chat podcast? Yes. All the priests listen to it. It's great crack. Ah, Father, God bless you. God bless everybody and all the blind guys. Subscribe to Blind Guys Chat wherever you get your podcasts. Always read the label. No need to consult your doctor. May cause hysteria. Joining us now is Al Edmansky, author of The Power of Disability. Al, thank you so much for taking some time out of your busy, busy day. I am Ryan Flurry, and joining us today are Steve Barkley. That would be me. And Rob Minot. Uh, Good afternoon. Those are three of the velvetous tones I have ever heard in one place. (laughs) All right, we're promoting this podcast. (laughs) It's literally the only thing we have going for us. Thanks again for uh, joining us. I can't even tell you how excited we are to have you on. Uh, I finished reading the book uh, over the weekend. And uh, I have to say, I love it. And frankly, uh, you know, we've been doing this this uh, show for about uh, we're going into our sixth year, and uh, I God, I wish we had talked to you three years ago, four years ago, five years ago. <laughs> so it's uh, it's great that we we finally have you on and that we finally met you. It's a pleasure, and thanks for those are really really kind words, and uh, I'm glad the book found you. Um, it dropped. <laughs> I went with the mainstream publisher, and it dropped just as COVID did. Oh, fun! And so all of my, you know, I bought lots of new shirts and you know, <laughs> whatever, a new hat, etc., and was set to go on the road. And um, of course, none of that's happened. So, 
So maybe a good place to start is maybe if you could just tell us a little bit about your background and just how your journey through the disability community started. My, my background is as a community organizer. Um, uh, so I've always been involved in grassroots movements of one kind or another and um, had no involvement uh, with the disability community, uh, community until my daughter Liz was born. And that's almost 43 years ago now. And, um, and so that, that experience changed my life in, in a variety of ways and, um, you know, gradually got pulled into all of the challenges that people with disabilities face in society. And, and so I simply transferred whatever aptitudes I had in the trade of community organizer into the, into the disability world. And so since then, I've been uh, involved in everything from closing the three big institutions in British Columbia, closing segregated schools, integrating classrooms, all the way through to, um, you know, helping to create the, the, you know, the registered disability savings plan, which is, you know, I always look at it as a source of economic power for people with disabilities. Um, so uh, I've run the full gamut of um, public policy issues, advocacy issues, both, you know, myself as, you know, as a father, but also as, uh, as I've experienced them with my daughter Liz, but also for individuals uh, all the way through to national and international work. Well, and that must have been such a, a fascinating journey to step through too, because you've really seen things at all different types of stages. Yeah. I mean, when, uh, when, Liz, when Liz was born, um, the, you know, the kind of books that were available for family uh, presented such a bleak, uh, you know, future. Um, and uh, we still had in British Columbia, um, big institutions and um, big institutions like that lead to institutional thinking as well. And so the thinking is that, you know, you have a disability, that means you're different and people who are different are best kept separate. You know, that kind of mindset right. was in the, it was in the air, you know, it was in the water supply. And so, um, you know, I joined with other parents um, who fought that, who said that this, you know, in my case, my daughter, but you know, our sons and daughters, um, are revealing a completely different person to what the status quo or what the popular sentiment is about disability. And so, um, you know, as families, we, um, you know, developed the family arm of the disability movement. And as time went by, we joined forces with the individual arm of the disability movement and, you know, began to look at the physical barriers, you know, basic stuff like curb cuts, um, uh, but also uh, communication barriers, um, uh, attitudinal barriers, and economic barriers. So, yeah, so when I began, all of those barriers were in full force, you know, in our society. And, um, you know, I think BC should be really proud of where it's come from. And a lot of that is the work of legions and legions of, of uh, advocates, right. individual advocates, family advocates and groups of advocacy uh, organizations who, who made that possible. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting when we when we did talk to Stephanie, um, you know, one of the things that we we sort of discussed is that the importance of all the, of these um, advocates, but it's almost overwhelming in a way because, you know, there there are so many different organizations that are fighting different battles for for different groups that it almost becomes a real challenge to be able to keep track of of everything that's out there that could potentially help the disability community. I think it's a it's an interesting and important insight. Um, you know, there are a lot of disability historians out there. Um, I'd, I'd recommend. Uh, He's a professor, his name is Tom Shakespeare, uh, Sir, Sir Tom Shakespeare, actually. <laughs> uh, but he's, um, 
you know, he's, he's a man with a disability, uh, he's an academic, uh, he's an activist, and he's a cultural player. And, and his assessment is that in the early stages of the disability revolution, as people came into four, it was diverse and people were working on their own agendas. And part of that, he says, is because the disabilities are so different. But what I've seen uh, happen more and more recently over the last decade, and I think we're seeing it more and more, is a coming together of the diversity within the disability movement to work on, um, on common issues. So that's an evolution. I think we could probably see that, um, you know, in the, in the women's movement over, you know, we're in the third or fourth, you know, stage of the women's movement uh, right. if you go back to the time of the suffragettes in the, in the early part of the last century all the way through so so these issues evolve and and uh, and there's uh, you know multiple ways in which people are responding to them and over time as a movement mature uh, there's a coming together and I think there is a unifying factor in the disability movement now you know, it really feels like we've really made some really large steps in the past three years. Um, you know, the three of us, we've sort of been been in the, um, the assistive technology business um, for quite a few years. And, you know, and we've been doing this podcast for, for five years now, talking to a lot of people within the, the disability community. And it really does feel like we're actually starting to make some real traction in the in the field of inclusion and diversity in the past probably like i would say two to three years and i i I think it's a really really exciting time how how are you seeing it well give me a second do you mind if i I turn the tables on you for a moment there rod what were you what are you thinking or what are you uh, you know observing i think um, or, or sensing that. Yeah, I'm, I'm sitting here uh, thinking, thinking much the opposite, Rob. I, I think we're seeing a lot of lip service these days that's not necessarily translating into real action. I, I, I carry on. Well, I, no, I do, but I do. I think I think that that we're having a lot more conversations. Yeah, I think. I, I mean, the, the the culture is much more aware of disability than it ever has been. Right. Um, do we have a long way to go? Yeah. Uh, you know, compared to other groups who've been marginalized one way or another, um, I think the the disability committee is, is kind of the last to, you know, to kind of uh, have uh, media attention, have, um, you know, the kind of um, TV movie industry attention that other groups have had. But we're starting to see it. And there was far more of a presence of disability. There are more and more TV shows in which characters with disabilities uh, actually are played by people with disabilities, and people with disabilities are playing other characters uh, in which their disability is not essential to the plot. Right. Uh, we're starting to see more of that. Um, uh, I just uh, read something the other day that R.J. Mitt, who was the uh, son in Breaking Bad, who, uh, uh, a boy who had cerebral palsy, played by uh, a, a young man who had cerebral palsy, is now starring in a, in another uh, series, um, and uh, it it's not about disability, but it is about uh, people with disabilities being in major roles. So we're starting to see more and more of that happening. So that's a that's a good sign. I think behind that is something I would call disability pride. And it's kind of taking back the language. Uh, it's it's recognizing that the broader culture uses terminology and has assumptions that make it impossible for you to describe your experience. And so you get together with folks to, especially helped in uh, by the artists in the midst to to begin to develop a sense of who you are, uh, disability and all, and uh, and you enter the world with that power, that pride, and that perspective. And I think we're starting to see that now. And that's actually going to cause some real challenges for, you know, for people like me, for parents, uh, 
who've had a major role and are kind of used to being, you know, in the lead um, with regard to our own sons and daughters. And now the disability movement is saying, wait a minute, folks, we'll take it from here. And uh, maybe it's time for you to learn to be an ally or, you know, or an accomplice. Uh, So I think we're starting to see those roles changing as well. So I see those pattern shifts happening. Yeah. And, and, you know, and going back to Steve's point, because I do think, you know, Steve is also right, too. I mean, because I I feel like the fight is sort of taking place on several different fronts. And certainly on, you know, on the cultural front, yes, we 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 are making some headway. But, you know, in terms of, say, some of the physical fights, like, you know, to to make build environments more accessible, those are places that, you know, there is a lot more work to be done. How do you see it? Like, because it seems to me that if we can shift perspectives, if we can make these conversations happen, that will automatically trickle down to help do things like make mandates for better accessibility within um, the build spaces happen? Or, or are we doing it backwards? Or is there a, an overall arching strategy that that needs to happen, do you think? Yeah, well, I, I certainly would agree with, you know, with Steve that the, the overall approach of the governments across the country, provincially and federally, with the possible exception of the BC government, certainly in some areas, has been very poor yeah. as it relates to people with disabilities. And so if you wanted a temperature check, <laughs> on where people with disabilities fit vis-a-vis every other group in the country, I would say that the, the disabled community was, was the, the kind of last to get any attention. Uh, and uh, that wasn't during the first wave of the pandemic, it was while well, the second wave was beginning. And, uh, and the attention they got was very minimal compared to, you know, to other groups. So that's a great, in my view, temperature check. And it's one of the, reasons why I've joined with, um, you know, with other people uh, to essentially um, advocate for the equivalent of a basic income supplement for uh, people with disabilities. So, um, and, and I hope we can talk about that more because that's on the rise. But, but having said that, that some of the challenges with the accessibility um, agenda are are coming out in the critique of the disability justice movement and i don't know if you've interviewed or talked to carmen papalia here in um, in british columbia he's he's he actually lives in burnaby but he's created what some people call an accessibility manifesto but essentially he says that if accessibility is is kind of a tick box of things that you're supposed to do it is entirely possible that you'll get inside a building, inside an art gallery, for example, and not be welcome there, notwithstanding the fact that you can get into it. Uh, The staff who are there aren't as welcoming as they could be, the way in which, um, you know, exhibits are are portrayed, the descriptions, alternate descriptive methods, et cetera, et cetera, all of which, contribute to the fact that you're still in a very sterile, sterile, unwelcome environment. So, um, so he advocates for, uh, you know, um, a, a different perspective than just simply an accessibility agenda. And um, one of those components, in my view, is economic power. Um, we, we allocate as a society um, a lot of money to people with disabilities right now, but it's all program-based. And I'm not sure that's the most efficient way in which to support people with disabilities. So in many cases, people with disabilities are program-rich and cash-poor. Hmm. That would be like saying to the, the three of you that I'm going to give you all of the you know, professional services that you need, you'll have a, you know, a certain amount that you can access of all those professional services, but you can't have any money. <laughs> those, those services that are available to you, they'll help you make your way in the world. And, uh, and you'll still be poor, but hey, you'll have all these access to all these services. That's essentially what life is like for many, many people with disabilities right now. So economic power, 
in my view, is a um, is a major either part of the accessibility agenda, next wave, or it's another way of looking at it. Yeah, I I, um, I actually worked with Carmen at a, uh, a camp for blind kids uh, on Boat Island years ago, and uh, I've followed a bit of what he's done since. And one of the things that I really love about his art is that he has always tried to make his art as inclusive as, pro as possible. Um, and I get, I get the the idea that you know you can you can come to a building, you can walk in the building, and once you get in there, it's not a welcoming environment for you. Um, and I, I still think that that is a, a function of the basic education that we're giving our society around disability, yeah. because we, yeah. we, when when somebody with a disability walks into a place. Oftentimes, the, the folks who are staffing there are not particularly experienced, and they just see somebody who checks that other box. You know, it's like, oh, I don't know much about this. I don't understand it. So I'm going to avoid interacting with this person as much as I can. Um, you know, we, we need environments to be more welcoming, but, but really what we need is some really baseline attitudinal change towards yeah. disability because it's not, it's not an other checkbox. It's a checkbox that we're all likely to check at some point in our lives. And there needs to be a better understanding of that. Yeah, I think that's well said, Steve. Um, and, and I think that, that goes a long way to what I've learned from, from Carmen. You know, in, in some ways, Carmen's uh, manifesto on accessibility, which is essentially his way of, uh, of auditing uh, public institutions, particularly art galleries and museums around the world, but would apply to all institutions for everyone, is that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a manifesto for democracy is that likely the people who are working in those buildings are really you know, part of a pyramidical structure in which they're not treated uh, with the kind of recognition that they deserve as well. So th this attitudinal question is about habits and attitudes and outdated assumptions. And they certainly apply to people with disabilities, but if you address that, the argument goes, and I've seen it, um, the world becomes uh, much better for everyone. Yeah, um, it, it's a social justice move, and that's why I like the disability justice framework. It, you know, it, it, I'm using my own language here because it's my understanding of it, and I don't pretend to have the full. But I certainly, you know, recommend you have a you know, have a look at some of the material that's out there. But, you know, it, it's, it simply says the basic ingredient in society is a caring relationship. Fair. Which is reciprocal, uh, that justice is love. There can be no love without justice, and there can be no justice without love. And so it's that framework, and you could, of course, that applies to disability justice and to people with disabilities. And of course, accessibility is a piece of it, but it's not the only piece of it. Um, we're wanting a full contributing opportunity available for everyone with a disability. But we want that for everyone in this society. And, and so I, I, it, for me, it's a, it's a really unifying thread in society. As you know from the book, my, my argument is that, you know, there, there are men, maybe many ways to unify our society, but one of them is to pay attention to people with disabilities. And if it starts to work for them the way it should work, it will work for all of us. In, your, in the book, you talk about how, I think the stat was something like four out of seven people in the world is somehow touched by disability, whether that's they, they themselves have some sort of a, a disability or they have a family member or a friend or, so it's just, a, it's an overwhelming majority of people. Disability is just a part of, of being human. Yet we, there are these misunderstandings that people are uncomfortable about having those conversations or at least they were historically. Why do you think that that is? Well, the, um, I mean, I'm a community organizer, so I always look at it from the point of view is, do, do people know each other? Uh, are they able to come together and uh, 
form a relationship where, where trust has the potential to grow within the context of that trusting relationship or caring relationship, is there an opportunity to begin to develop an agenda in which there's some clarity about what they might have in common? And if that happens, um, can we then work together on that common agenda? So that's sort of, <laughs> that's what I've done all my life. And so I look at that stat, you know, whether it's four sevenths of the world or, you know, in Canada, the stats are about, you know, three in five Canadians are touched by disability. Yeah. So I, I anyway, I, the, the four and seven stat worldwide is it's, it's phenomenal. And so I just think that maybe we don't need more policy uh maybe what we need are more community organizers who work to bring us together to look at the common agenda that we have to create a you know an intellectual and a values framework around that and an agreement to work on common uh, on common issues that's certainly the approach that we're taking with regard to the Canada disability benefit is doing our best to unify the disability community, which has multiple objectives and multiple priorities. But our hope is that we can find uh, a way to appeal to everybody, despite those differing perspectives and priorities, to join forces to end the poverty experienced by disability, uh, people with disabilities once and for all. It affects roughly 2 million Canadians in total. Uh, two million Canadians with disabilities, and it's it's between thirty and forty percent of the people who are poor in our country. So, so we're asking people from every you know walk of life and from every perspective on disability and from the broader Canadian society to join forces in this regard. So that's a kind of practical manifestation of the question you asked about why have we not been able to achieve the change that we have. And I just think the opportunity has not been there uh, to come together the way I'm describing. Given that, are we close then? Well, we're seeing it all over. I, I mean, um, I take a lot of uh, hope from the CryptoVote, hashtag CryptoVote in, in America. And the disability justice folks there, all of the Democratic Party presidential candidates uh, workshop their policy on disability with uh, people in the disability justice movement. Uh, Biden certainly did. And I think at one time he had two disability engagement specialists working for him, both of whom had disabilities. And that has rolled over into the Biden White House if you begin to think of the the uh, attention that he has paid uh, in his policy announcements and in his funding announcements um, to people with disabilities. And the presentation is not just that this is an important thing because it's a social issue. The presentation by uh, Biden is also that this is important because it's important for the economic restructuring and well-being of the country. So it's become more fundamental than a nice-to-have social add-on, if you, you see what I mean. Yeah. So that didn't start out of the blue, and politicians just all of a sudden didn't get sensitive to this issue. That was a whole lot of community organizing work that had been done beforehand. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very optimistic, and I see the same thing happening in Canada. There certainly was a lot, were a lot of people that came together for the Accessible Canada Act, and we're hoping that that same those same numbers plus 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 more will come together for you know achieving the end of uh, poverty for people with disabilities in Canada. In fact, if it if it is achieved, and I should say will be achieved <laughs> when it's achieved, uh, we'll be the only country in the world that's ever declared that we're going to do it and will have done it. Oh, well that that's exciting. We've talked to folks from places like uh, the President's Group. They make that business case to companies that that people with disabilities it, it just makes perfect sense to to be employing them and it's those types of organizations and advocates i think that are really making that difference especially in that economic space 
Yeah. And just recently, I don't know if you follow Caroline Casey's work in the Valuable 500 uh, internationally, but just recently they announced the 500 member. So 500 of the world's biggest corporations have now declared that they will put on the board agenda the employment of people with disabilities. Um, that's that's big. Her, her partners are the Microsofts of this world or major advisors, Richard Branson and whatever. But Carolyn Casey, who's a woman uh, who's blind uh, from Ireland, um, you know, started this three years ago um, at the World Economic Forum in Davos, and um, and she's she's achieved it. And her argument is that if it's not on the board agenda, if it's not reported on regularly, it doesn't get done. And that despite the broader diversity agenda and its prominence within that. Uh, people with disabilities have been left behind. So that's a major shift now. Um, I invite your listeners to just Google um, the valuable 500 and, and to see what's going on there. And I think that will play out in terms of economic opportunities, uh, employment opportunities for people with disabilities. And you're right, the president's group here is a great example. To the best of my knowledge, there's no other group like it in the country that you know has corporate leadership saying we can do this this needs to be done there's no reason why this shouldn't be done so i want to shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about the book um first of all i guess what what prompted the book what what made you write it um well i've i've been collecting stories i, I guess you could call them alternate stories about people with disabilities ever virtually ever since Liz was born and um, I, my last book I had written was on six patterns that successful movements use to make change. And I ended the book with, uh, you know, essentially with the understanding that the, the area that, that most movements do not pay attention to, uh, and therefore it limits their uh, success, is the area of culture. It's this question you've raised it before about habits and attitudes and, and beliefs uh, have to be addressed in the popular culture. Otherwise, stuff starts to slide backwards. And so um, I thought, well, um, a natural succession to that, you know, my previous book was a book on culture. And rather than make it a general uh, kind of book, uh, why don't I make it specific to the community that I've been part of for over 40 years? Um, and so that that led to to the book. So in many ways, as you know, I opened the book by saying it's, it's both a disability book and not a disability book. You know, it's about the cultural determinants of change. Uh, and we're just happening to, to use people with disabilities as our examples. Um, having said that, um, you know, I wanted to enter the culture with the kind of lessons that I had learned um, from, from the disability community over the years um, that I think are lessons that the culture wants to hear or, or needs to hear. So that motivated me. Um, and you know my silent companion on this all the way along has been you know has been my daughter because i would say that the stages of my relationship with her have gone from you know cure to conformity to culture you know <laughs> um, over the last 40 years so i've landed with liz at the same spot that you know that the book is at which is that this is a book about culture like how long have you been collecting stories for the book <laughs> uh, it's 40, 40 years. Wow. And so there were newspaper clippings, you know, to start. Um, you know, I, I remember, you know, Merrick, who's known in popular culture as the Elephant Man, but I remember collecting a story about him in newsprint years and years ago about how he was in a, a very wealthy individual for his time. Not just in the disability community, but just generally, he had wealth. And he was an entrepreneur and he, he sold his disability uh, in quotation marks, uh, but he was in control of his, uh, his career. Um, 
And so I remember that. Well, that's a story you don't hear about often. You you get the, you know, if you the movies about the elephant man, it's all about pity and, you know, kind of a, what people tend to call the inspiration porn nature of it. Right. And, and this noble man enduring suffering on his own. And there's no sense of his own agency in that regard. And it's not about ignoring his disability, but, you know, that's the real deal. But it's, it is about ignoring other parts of his life because it doesn't fit the cultural story. <laughs> and so people are, so that's, that's one example of what I collected way back. And, you know, I you began to look at all kinds of famous people where their disability wasn't mentioned, or if it was mentioned, it, it was massaged to conform to the cultural narrative. You know, Helen, Helen Keller was a communist. She was a socialist. Right. <laughs> She was a campaigner for birth control. Uh, she ran uh, as a socialist candidate um, um, for political office. But the cultural story is about her learning to write after putting her hand in, and uh, learning to read and write after putting her hand in water and. Right and the miracle worker who was her teacher and so on and so forth. And that's kind of the consistent story as opposed to this broader view of her. So, yeah, so I just started collecting those stories. And, and, and then once you realize that the historical view of somebody isn't completely accurate, then you go looking for it and then you find these other parts to the story. And so that's what the book is, I hope, is a broader um uh, understanding of these of these people who are famous uh, and or who should be <laughs> right yeah I mean and actually it's funny you bring that one up because that was one that really stood out to me too because I was just like I had no idea about all of that about Helen Keller because I was I was like a lot of people I just you know I, I certainly knew that she was an advocate but I had no idea of um, just how far that reached so and I think that that's that's the real power of the book, at least for me personally, because when you when you collect all those stories together and you start consuming them one after the other and really get this this broad picture of all these people throughout the years in society contributing all sorts of things from minor things to major things from regular people to famous people. It it really just drives this this idea home of the fact that disability shouldn't be viewed as this all-encompassing attribute for people. It's, it's just, it's another, it's just an attribute as opposed to one that should be at the forefront. And to me, that's, that really speaks loudly in, in what we need to, how we need our perspective to shift in society um, and, and just, look at people as people first and disability wherever they want to place it. Yeah, I mean, it's both, uh, I think Liz in so many words has said to me many, many different times, it's both, you know, her Down syndrome is, it's the real deal, it's who she is. And it's no big deal. So it's both part of her and it's, it's a fact of her life and influences the way she sees the world. Uh, she's proud of it she thinks it's rad but in the meantime she's an artist and a spoken word poet and makes most of her money as a graphic facilitator you know and so she's got a job to do and and uh and you know sometimes those appear at the same time um but um i, I mean i i think i i worry all the time because as you know i've done now, uh, um, I've taken the stories I didn't make it into the book, and I've created a disability digest, and and I've produced one pretty well once once a week, and there's four or five stories in every one. And I'm, you know, I, I'm I'm worried that I'm only, you know, I could be accused of going the other way and just only presenting the positive side. But I think the, you know, the argument I make is that history, you know, the past. The stories of the past, the history uh, that that we uh, use as our basis for going forward is what influences the future. And if that history contains all of those negative attitudes and stereotypes, or is all about the only role for a person with disability is to be someone to be pitied, 
to be an object of our charity or to be a source of our inspiration. Right. Thank you very much. And now we don't need you anymore because we've got our inspiration hit. If that's all there is, then uh, we're going to continue into the future with those assumptions. So what I'm trying to do is break that right. and and say that the disability is real and it does have consequence and there are still a ton of barriers there. But in the meantime, this is a class of people who um, have shaped the world. Yeah. <laughs> who shaped our world totally. And if you took them away, you wouldn't recognize the world. Yeah. So it's sort of, you know, it's kind of serving that, trying to serve that up. And the really interesting thing is that, that people are now sending me more and more and more and more. It's like it's like a can opener now <laughs> of alternate perspectives on this. You opened the floodgates. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's one of the things I was saying to Rob the other day when I had just finished reading the book as well, is that our interdependency on each other, you know, a gold medalist doesn't become a gold medalist on his own. He has parents, coaches, trainers to get him to that point. You know, I'm totally blind and my blindness is a disability, but going into a restaurant that doesn't have a braille menu is disabling me from independently ordering a menu choice. So yeah. you know, yeah. it's, it's shifting that perspective, right? And those are the two things I really got from that book. Well, thank you for, for saying that, Ryan. And I wondered too if we're what you thought of the chapter that uh, th that began. There's no independence without interdependence. Um, I mean, I think this often this is a hard one for the culture because, especially the you know, we really influence a lot by the American view of the world. That is the is the great person usually a man, and they you know, against all odds, achieve something, in, you know, very significant that most of us could never achieve and that that's the sort of story that we follow. That's the template. When in fact, the real template is exactly what you said, that there's no successful athlete who gets where they are just on their talent. It's the social network around them. It's the recognition of their interdependence on other. And in fact, our culture thrives on vulnerability. Um, but you won't, you won't get that in most Hollywood movies. And maybe what people with disabilities represent is that a reminder that, that, that in fact, the truth about vulnerability is that's who all of us are. And maybe that's the... Uh, the source of the antipathy that a lot of people in society feel toward people with disabilities. I mean, it was the way I felt. I have to be honest about it before Liz was born. I, I never thought much about disability and couldn't figure out why, you know, people I knew were, were working in the disability field. I'm, I'm not ashamed to be, I'm, I'm ashamed to be saying this, um, but, you know, it's the way I felt. And so I, the book, in a sense, allowed me to come clean on that, uh, but also to unpack, you know, where that came from. And I, and I think part of it is just, is, is recognizing as you go older that we're all vulnerable. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, like you're mentioning about the inspiration porn, you know, people see, you know, I, I don't know, a blind person crossing the street. And, oh, wow. You're so brave. And, you know, most of us are sick and tired of that. We're not an inspiration. We're just trying to get by, trying to get to our job, trying to do whatever we need to get done. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I think this this leads back to you know something I said earlier. We're we're not we're we're not doing a good enough job of of creating the right attitudes in our young people yet. Uh, and I think you know I think we're we're starting to get there, but we're we're not there yet. And the the whole focus has to be that that all of us with or without a disability are humans first the the, the disability might might define your character in some way but but you're a human first and yeah. it's it's frustrating that w when you see people reacting 
to people with disabilities, oftentimes the response is one that's based in their own fears or misconceptions. Yeah. Those those started in an early age. Uh, I just think we we really need to do a better job right at the outset of, you know, letting our kids see examples of, of people who, uh, you know, are not the the cookie cutter person. They're they're <laughs> You know, they've got diverse abilities, different ways of doing things, but understand that at the core, they're just a human being. Yeah. And I, I, I see an opportunity with COVID. I, I don't know if the three of you and your other guests have brought this up, but, you know, this, this whole question of, you know, in the book, I described it as life comes from life. <laughs> you know, it, it's, and it's, life in every shape size and background and condition it's you know messy lives struggling lives complex lives funny lives mysterious lives beautiful lives sacred lives sensuous lives um life comes from you know from life and in that context that you know we we only all of us we thrive in life uh, by having a nurturing environment of family and friends who care about us, but also a society that cares enough about us to allocate the resources, to put in place the accessibility mechanisms so that everyone can live life to their fullest. Um, and when you couple that with uh, the fact that, that life is also about vulnerability, that's the kind of complex nature, messiness nature of our life. Well, COVID has just put that on full display. Who is not vulnerable? <laughs> and, um, and how did we get out of this? How have we gotten out of it? We've gotten out of it not by exclusively relying on the people at the top, but by relying on the people you know, at the bottom, by doing things together. That's been my experience all the way through this. Little things and big things all the way through. So a new narrative is emerging out of COVID. Uh, we have to be careful to preserve it because the old narrative will <laughs> want to overshadow it and get back to the way it always made stories, sold stories, told stories. But I do think there is an opportunity there that there is an alternative to the the lone actor epic hero story that's out there, but instead a story that, that celebrates our deep connections to each other. And that reminds us that none of us get where we're going on our own. Sure. And, and what I say, and that success doesn't come from rising above, but by rising with. And um, I think people with disabilities can lead that charge they can roll forward on that way, in that way and whatever way they mobilize uh, and, and use mobility to get. But I, I think that's actually, that's the other flip I want to make here is that, you know, is to make sure people understand that power and then um, to have people with disabilities lead us out of this mess that we're in, that the pandemic has revealed. Mess was here before the pandemic is revealing. So I don't know what you think about that, but that was why I titled the book, you know, 10 lessons for surviving. Yeah. Thriving. Yeah. And changing the world. And here, I mean, I wrote this before the pandemic, but I believed it then. I really believe it now yeah. that if we get people with disabilities in, in positions of power, they will change the culture. I think you're absolutely right. So Ryan, get busy. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's all of us. It, that's the thing is, is how do we, so that's the difference between now and then in the stage we're at in the movement right. is that we're at the stage in the movement where the move, it's the unifying move that in my view is the best move. It's the essential move. It's the move that will, uh, that will topple the out of date assumptions and attitudes and habits. So yeah, in a sense, we all have to get busy, but I would say we all get busy in as in the way that we all can, that we don't have to do it on our own, 
that we're in this together. We have this mantra in the work that we're doing on uh, the disability without poverty movement that we're, that we're creating, uh, and we'll soon launch in a, in a couple of weeks, uh, you know, with a website and all that other stuff. But um, is that the, the critical ingredient of a movement is a caring relationship and the reciprocity involved in that. It's not just the person receiving care, it's the person giving care. It's both together. And um, so it, we don't have to do big things. We have to do things together. That's the big thing. I agree. We have to change from the bottom up instead of the top down. And I think that that's certainly we can see that in you know, even in just talking in this conversation, you know, talking the difference between the the cultural shift that we've been able to have in the past three years versus policy shift, which has, you know, been not great. Uh, it just goes to show you that where the, where that power is, and and I really do feel like it's it's as the group, it's as the collective. That's that's how we we get through change, and it's not through policy, you know, handed down from the from the top. Before we let you go, though, the name of the book, of course, is "The Power of Disability: Ten Lessons for Surviving, Thriving, and Changing the World." Uh, yeah. Recommend all of our listeners go out and grab it. Um, where can people find the um, the Disability Digest? Oh, my goodness. Um, maybe I'll just give my website, Nick. There's a way to sign up there. That's probably the easiest. Um, so it's alatmansky.com, A-L-E-T-M-A-N-S-K-I.com. And um, just on one of the headings there, there's a you know, blog digest heading. Click on that. And you can sign up there. Perfect. And so we'll, we'll also... that says subscribe to my blog. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. And we'll include that too in the show notes. So anyone who's listening, just go check out the show notes and we'll have a link. Al, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for taking some time out and, and chatting with us. Um, and hey, I'm already looking forward to, to having you on again. Well, I love your velvet tones. My goodness. <laughs> this, this, is a, this is a really skookum trio you've got here. So uh, I, I think... I'm surprised you're searching for guests. I doubt you are. Well, you fit, you fit right in too. You've got that that nice whiskey tone to your voice there. You know, fitting fitting right in here. So maybe we can get a barbershop yeah. quartet going. Yeah, well, it's been cured well. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> All right, take care, guys. Okay, All right, thanks, thanks, Al. Al. All the best. Bye bye. I uh, I don't even know where to. I don't even know how to close that out, man. Well, his. His book and our discussion covered so many topics. You know, he mentioned early on when his daughter, when he found out his daughter had Down syndrome, you know, one of the phases he went through was trying to find a cure and then coming to acceptance. You know, we all kind of deal with that at, at some point with our disability, I think. Um, but then you move on, right? And you start researching more and more about how you can get involved in the community, how you can advocate for persons with disabilities and identify with them to the, your, your best, um, the best way you can. Like you say, there's just so much there that it's definitely worth a read. And everybody, I think, will take away something different from that book. Yeah, I really do. I think, yeah, you know what? I'll tag onto that too and just say, uh, highly recommend this book. Uh, we will definitely include a link to purchase it on Amazon in the show notes. Um, you, Ryan, you got it on Audible, correct? I did. Yep. Yeah, or it's Audible. Um, yeah, it's it's. I think it's a great read for anybody. There you go. Plug in again, man. This is just a, the plug show. I love it though. Excellent. Uh, hey, Ryan. Rob. Uh, where can people find us, speaking of plugs? Well, as usual, they can find us at either atbanter.com or atbanter.ca. That is correct. Uh, they can also drop us an email if they so desire at cowbell at atbanter.com. And they can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. That's right. Or back out on our respective decks, sipping on Nanaimo Bar liqueur. That's right. Mm, good. 
Well, I think that is just about going to do it for us this week. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening in. A huge thanks to Al Edmansky, of course, for joining us. And we will see everybody next week. Hashtag who is Shannon. This podcast has been brought to you by Canadian Assistive Technology, providing low vision and blindness solutions across Canada. Find us online at www.canastech.com. That's C-A-N-A-S-S-T-E-C-H dot com. Or call us toll free at 1-844-795-8324. For all your assistive technology servicing needs, call Chaos Technical Services at 778-847-6840 or find them online at chaostechnicalservices.com. 